You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Hello and welcome to The Real Well Show. I'm Kathy Fetke and today we're going to be doing the Ask Kathy segment, which means that people have been sending us questions and I'm going to answer them here on The Real Well Show. So the first question is a great one. Well, they're all great questions, but this is one that many, many people ask all the time. And that is, if you had $100,000 to invest today, how would you invest it? And this comes from Carla. Thank you, Carla, for the question. Uh, my answer would be, wow, it just depends. Everybody's situation is so different. So if $100,000 is all the money that you have, if that's everything you've got and you're just starting out investing, it's going to be different than somebody who maybe just got a $100,000 bonus, but they've already got other investments and they've got savings and a great income uh, and no time to actually do any work. They just need to invest passively. So for everybody, it's different. Let's just say it's me. You're talking to Kathy Fedke. And if I had $100,000 and Rich and I said, where do you want to invest it? We would do what we've been doing for 20 years. We would look for markets where we think there's a lot of potential, where we see cities investing in themselves, where demographics are shifting and people are moving to those areas because there's job growth or it's just a, a really nice place to live, a place that's reinvented itself. Uh, so we, we watch for job growth, population growth, infrastructure growth, and then we still want to see affordability in that market. If somebody can't afford uh, what you've got, uh, they're not going to be able to rent it from you or buy it from you or whatever. You've got to be in an affordable marketplace. So generally, uh, in any marketplace, we like to be in that mid-range. We want to be owning properties that the average person can afford. Uh, so with today's climate, I would say I would, <laughs> I hate to bore you guys, but it's the same story I've been saying for 20 years. Uh, we'd be looking at Texas because we know there's still tremendous growth in parts of Texas. Lots of Prices have gone up, so you really need to be in the right neighborhoods with the right team. We've got a great team at Real Wealth that's been helping investors get get deals for the past 10 years. So I'd probably work with Leah, as you may or may not know. Uh, I am partnering with partnering with her on a fund. Uh, we have a fund that is just raising money and buying properties in, in her neck of the woods in Texas, where there's so, so much job growth still. I was just there for a tour with a group of investors in December, and I just couldn't believe that 20 years later, when Rich and I started investing in Texas 20 years ago, and we saw so much construction, just freeways coming in and cranes everywhere and headquarters being built. We didn't think that that would last for 20 years, <laughs> you know, um, but it is. I have video of me just filming as I'm driving down the freeway and there's expansion and expansion and cranes and buildings and headquarters still. So we're still finding deals that are under $200,000, which is incredible in an area that's having so much growth where actually there's a tremendous amount of chip manufacturing coming into the area and tech coming into the area and that North Texas part, even, even up to the Oklahoma border where we're seeing some really good deals there as well. So I think for a long-term play, uh, that North Texas area, really all around the Dallas area. Austin, of course, too, but Austin's a little bit more expensive. But I think there's little pockets there where it makes sense, too. Even San Antonio, we've got a great team in San Antonio now with fourplexes there. There is just 
nonstop growth in Texas. Because of what we saw really exaggerated over the last two years, three years now, if you can believe that, uh, when so many states were just shutting down and businesses could not open up. Where I live in in the Los Angeles area, if you opened up your business, they would just turn off the electricity or the water um, or arrest you if you tried to do business. Uh, so that's obviously had a big effect on companies that were maybe already not liking the politics of California and the sort of anti-business sentiment that's there. Um, so a lot of companies were already planning on moving and after COVID, they're out they're just like, we've had enough. We don't want this to happen again where we don't have control over our business. Whereas there were a few states that allowed their businesses to operate, um, Texas and Florida being two of those states. So we've seen an uh, acceleration of what was already happening. The demographic shift that was already happening got really a booster, you know, basically over the last three years. So I would also be looking at the Tampa area. And um, Tampa, I love because our team there is finding, again, finding properties in the $200,000 range in one of the fastest growing areas of the country. So with $100,000, if you're looking at a, a property in the $200,000 range, that's about a $40,000 down payment. So I'd get two. I'd probably get either two in Tampa or Orlando or um, or somewhere in Texas, either in the Dallas or San Antonio area. That's what I would do. Now, um, if, if, if you're somebody who's working full-time or you're out of the country and you just don't have time to do any management, you don't have time to apply for a loan, then I might take that $100,000 and put it in our fund, which you can find at growdevelopments.com because we're just going to do all that work for you and we're going to split the profits uh, 75-25. So, um, we do the work, you get, you know, you get, you get your 8% target return, but you don't have to do anything. You don't have to apply for a loan. You don't have to deal with your property manager. We, you don't have to fix up properties. We're doing all of that. And we're doing it equity capture because we're buying older homes and fixing them up and renting them out, which we don't necessarily promote at real wealth because it's hard to manage, uh, a renovation from afar. So we only recommend that our members at Real Wealth buy already renovated properties. Uh, but in the fund, we'll do it because we're overseeing it. And uh, that would be what I would do if I were too busy, had a full-time job, and I couldn't manage my properties. I would just invest in the fund. Now, if I were just starting out and I have bad credit and I just landed $100,000, let's say from an inheritance or something. Again, that's a different story. I would probably invest at least 5,000 of that into education to just to make sure, and you don't even have to spend that much, but um, at least $100, buy a bunch of books, you know, buy Retire Rich with Rentals, make sure you're educated before you deploy that money. Uh, if $100,000 is all you've got, you want to make sure you have plenty of reserves. Uh, but, you know, if you've got good credit, then just buy your first rental property, uh, which again would be about $40,000 down. You still have $60,000 that you can have as reserves to, you know, make sure everything goes well with that first property. And then you've got the experience to go buy the next one. Uh, if you have all the time in the world, then by all means, learn how to wholesale, learn how to do subject to, uh, learn how to flip. This is all far more time intensive and you need a lot of experience and time. So partner with someone who's got the experience and maybe you come in as the equity 
um, as the funding for that. And the other person comes in um, to do the work. So again, there's so many options for what to do with $100,000, but that's what I would do. All right. So the next question is from Jeff. Is it a bad time to use a HELOC for a down payment? There's never really a good or a bad time to use a HELOC. I think you can get a HELOC at any time. So Rich and I just got a HELOC and it was just as difficult as getting a regular loan. We couldn't believe it. And extremely expensive because it's in second position and banks aren't really comfortable in second position. And with rates up, uh, we the rate was very high. We ended up getting an adjustable because we didn't want to be fixed into that high rate. And I really believe rates are going to be going down. With that said, you know, to me, it doesn't matter where you get the money to invest um, as long as you're able to pay it back and as long as the investment makes sense. So when using a HELOC, and for anyone who's not familiar with what that is, it's a home equity line of credit. Okay, so basically you have your first loan on your property, but you have a 2 or 3% interest rate, so you don't want to refi that, but you still want to tap some of the equity. So you just get a HELOC an equity line on the property, it's in second position at a much higher interest rate. Uh, So when you look at that and you use that HELOC as a down payment, you've got to add up the interest costs of using that HELOC as the down payment. So if you're just using, say, $40,000 cash to buy a $200,000 property, uh, you're not paying interest on that $40,000. But if you're using your HELOC, then you are. You're paying 9% or so on that $40,000. So that has to be added to your performa. And if the numbers work and it makes sense, by all means do it. If it's negative cash flow, don't. Unless this is the only time I recommend or I would consider negative cash flow. So if you're getting so much equity by buying the property that it makes up for that negative cash flow, or if it's just such an incredible deal, like you just know you're getting a great deal on it and the area is going to go up in value, then you might be willing to take that negative cash flow for a while. Not a long-term thing. I don't recommend it normally. Sometimes it makes sense. Most of the time it doesn't. But if you're using a HELOC for anything, just make sure that you calculate the interest payments on that money as part of the pro forma. And, um, you know, I've seen people get equity lines and invest in syndications. So let's say you're paying 9% on the equity line, but the syndication is paying a 6% cash on cash. You're negative. Because you may be only you maybe this syndication, this this multifamily project you invested in or something, maybe the IRR is gonna be around seventeen percent, say in five years, but the cash on cash return is five percent or two percent or whatever it is, and you're paying more on that equity line, uh, you're really taking a huge risk. It's very speculative because you never know how a project's going to go. You never know if it's going to hit that target of 17%. I certainly have done projects that didn't hit it at all. And that in fact lost money because COVID, you know, there was difficult years behind us and things didn't always go right. So uh, speculating is, um, it's, it's for speculators. If you have the money to speculate, by all means do it. If you're not worried about losing your money, but if you don't want to do that, just get into solid cash flow properties and again make sure that you're accounting for the cost of the money of a HELOC. Okay. Uh, next question was Are 30 year fixed rate loans still preferable? Many lenders are now recommending ARMS. My time holding would be about 10 years. Great question. Again, from Jeff. Uh, 
Rich and I love 30-year fixed rate loans. We mostly love 30-year fixed rate loans when the rate is low. So in other words, at the last few years, why would you not get a 30-year fixed rate when you were locking in two, three, four percent rates? Why test that? You know, we locked in such great low rates. Unfortunately, not on all our properties. We should have, but you know, why would you get anything else um, today? It doesn't make as much sense because why would you want to lock in the ugly rates from today? Uh, listen to my last podcast with Barry Habib because he goes into why he really thinks that rates are going to come back down. He basically says that rates follow inflation and we're seeing inflation come down. The Fed is doing everything it can to fight inflation and slow down the economy to bring it back down to the 2% target. So you can be pretty sure the Fed's going to get what they want eventually, and it's, it's already happening. So if inflation's going down, rates will likely go down in 2023. So why on earth would you lock in a 30-year fixed rate mortgage right now? Don't do it. It's much better to just lock in whatever the rate is and know that you can refi in a, probably a year to a pretty decent rate. Uh, I would say if you're going to hold it for 10 years and you can get a five or a seven or a 10 year arm, it's still fixed for those years. So if you're not planning on holding it forever, just get a, get an arm because again, if it's a two year, five year, seven, 10, whatever arm you get, it is fixed for that period of time. And if you're planning on refining or you know that there's going to be, you believe that there's going to be an equity growth in that property and you're going to want to refi anyway, or you're going to fix that property, improve it, build the equity in it, and then refi, just get an arm. They're, they're not as scary as people think. Uh, back when I was a mortgage broker, they were terrifying loans <laughs> because they're not the same arm products today. Back then, the, the, the arm products that brought down the global economy were ridiculous. It was basically, to, just to give you an idea of the kinds of things we were able to underwrite, which made no sense at the time and make no sense today and clearly never made sense, but somehow were approved. Um, you could, I could, I could give you a loan based on a teaser rate. So let's say the payment at 6% P and P I, you know, principal and interest payments was $2,000 a month, but the teaser rate was, you know, a percentage of that. So the payment would look like it was $500 a month on the uh, teaser rate. That's what I could qualify you for, knowing full well that the payment was going to adjust to the 2000 and you couldn't afford it. Those were the kinds of loans that were getting approved at that time. Um, and NAG-AM loans where you could pick your payment. So you could pay your 30-year fixed, you could pay just interest only, or you could pay a negative amortization loan, which means that you would only pay a portion of the payment and the difference would go at the end of the loan. So let's say you had a $200,000 loan and a, you know, the $2,000 payment and you just, uh, I'm just taking numbers out of the air, uh, but you only wanted to pay a thousand dollars that month. And that extra thousands you didn't pay would go to the end of the loan and your loan would now be $201,000. So arms back then were stupid. They made no sense, no financial sense at all. It's no surprise that banks went under for giving out those ridiculous loans. But that's what was so dangerous. Today, it's just basically saying you're fixed for five years. And after that, it, it converts 
um, to adjustable an adjustable rate. But we're kind of going into a lower rate environment. So it's really less risky right now, in my opinion. So no, I have no problem at all with ARMS. I think getting a 30-year fixed rate note right now would not be wise because who wants to lock in these rates? Okay. Let's go on to the next question. What markets would you shy away from and why? And this is from Andreas Ernst. Thanks for the question, Andreas. So, huh. It's such a good question. I'll I'll just answer for me personally. uh, I would shy away from markets where there's people leaving uh, for, for reasons like high taxes or over-regulation because that's really not in favor right now. What's in favor is if, if businesses want to do business, they're going to go to business friendly places. So I'd be really careful about certain areas. I'll, I'll use one city and I feel bad saying it because I've got friends who invest in this city, but I'd be um, careful of places like Detroit. Uh, Detroit is pretty dependent on the auto industry. That's consistently in flux these days, but also for the past 50 years, people have been moving out. Now that's Detroit proper. So many of those people are moving out into the suburbs. So I would still consider suburbs of Detroit, uh, but the city itself is really losing population. Uh, I would be careful about bubblicious cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas because there was so much overbuilding. I mean, there's a lot of building. We don't know yet if it was overbuilding, but an enormous amount of building in those cities because so many people were coming to those areas. But now that things are slowing out, but now that things are slowing down and inventory levels are rising and there's so much new construction coming online, it just makes me nervous. I'd rather see um, what's going on in a year or two in those cities. Same with Austin and Boise. Great, great places where a lot of people want to move for so many different reasons. But the people were bidding up prices because they were coming from California and everything looked cheap in Austin or, or Boise. So they didn't mind spending an extra $100,000, $200,000 on a property because it was still half of what they were used to you know, paying in California. But I think there's a leveling out happening there. Uh, it will certainly come back. These are cities that will come back because they're so desirable for people retiring or wanting to raise a family or for the tech industry. But right now it's just a moving target and I would wait. Now the places where I would invest are just the tried and true where the, where it's kind of the opposite of what I said It's where people are moving to not from and where businesses are moving to and and not from. (laughs) So that would be uh, in Texas, Florida, really the Southeast in general, Georgia, the Carolinas. These are areas that just continue to grow because there's such a massive amount of baby boomers retiring, looking for a nice warm climate and affordable living. But you've also got millennials looking for the same thing, looking for a nice safe place to, to raise their families that's affordable. And, uh, and so we're seeing two demographic groups moving to the Southeast. So I definitely would stick to what we've been doing and invest in those areas. Although I really like the Midwest as well and uh, Ohio and Indianapolis, there's a lot of growth in those areas too. So that wasn't the question though. You were saying which areas to shy away from. (laughs) All right. Next question. Does the 1% rule still matter? Um, You know, the 1% rule never really mattered. It was just more of a, a way of gauging whether you were getting a good deal or not. It's really hard to get the 1% rule. And let me explain what that is. Uh, it used to be, or it is, if you were buying a $100,000 home, you would be getting $1,000 in rent. 
So your rent would be 1% of the purchase price. And that was kind of how we were gauging things over the last early, you know, and that's how we were gauging things uh, last decade and what I wrote about in my book. It was fairly easy to find that. It's so hard to find that today. Uh, I would say most people are getting closer to 0.7% of purchase price in their rents, but it's really just kind of a gauge. You just look at that to get an idea, but you've got to really dive into the pro forma because that's what matters. Every area might have different taxes or insurance costs. So um, really adding up the, the full pro forma is what matters most versus the 1% rule. All right. And finally, it says you talk about hot markets in Florida. What about cities outside the major metros? Are they doable? Um, you know, absolutely. There's That's from Cynthia. Thanks for the question, Cynthia. You know, there are places to invest all over the U.S. We just have our favorites. But of course, you could find deals almost anywhere. Some people invest in California and make it work. Generally, the trend is people do like to live in the suburbs because they can be near their job center and they can be near the action, but they can also have a little bit more space, a little bit more of a affordable property and more land. Uh, more space for the kids and the and the pets. So the trend is the suburbs, again, outside of the big cities, because those millennials that maybe loved living in the cities are forming families, forming households, having kids, having pets. And, you know, that can get really old in an apartment downtown. Although some people still love that, but generally speaking, especially after COVID, uh, I think people kind of want their own air. <laughs> they want to breathe their own air and have their own space just in case a pandemic like that ever hit us again, that they wouldn't be locked in a building uh, where they can't get out. You know, Whereas those who had homes in the suburbs weren't suffering too much because they could go outside and you know kind of have a life. So yeah, absolutely. Investing in the suburbs can be done. Just make sure that the numbers work. It always comes back to that pro forma and what you're trying to achieve. Are you trying to get cash flow? Are you trying to get growth? I like to invest more for growth because I don't need the cash flow right now. I, I love my job and I, I still have my job at Real Wealth. So I'm not investing for the cash flow. I'm investing for my future, which means I want to be in an area where I really believe that the property values will be much higher in 10 years when I would want to retire. So in, in 10 years, do I think that this little suburb outside of Detroit is going to do as well as the little suburb outside of Tampa? You know, these are the kind of questions I ask myself. Am I going to get more cash flow in Detroit? Yeah. But am I going to get less cash flow today in Florida? Yeah. But what's my story going to be in 10 years? Where am I going to be making the most money? So those are the questions I ask myself. And I like to be in the suburbs of growth areas. Um, oh, I have one more question and it is what's your outlook on short-term rentals? And this comes from Carla. Would you recommend investing that in them in the current environment? And what should we be mindful of? Uh, right now there's a big shift happening in short-term rentals. We personally are seeing it in our own. We have three. Um, it's just not very predictable right now. And there's a lot of competition, a lot of new uh, short-term rentals have come on the market over the past couple of years, and that's really decreased the income for the individual uh, short-term rental owner. There's just more competition. Anytime there's more supply than demand, uh, it's going to be problematic. Now, over the last two years, people could live anywhere. Their kids weren't going to school. They were 
they were doing online school and people were working virtually. So, hey, why not take the family and go rent an Airbnb and do your schooling and, and do your work from some cool Airbnb somewhere. So during COVID, when we started our little Airbnb business, we were booked every single night. We didn't even have a day off, you know, it was constant because people didn't want to stay in hotels. They didn't want to be close to other people. They wanted to kind of have their own space of an Airbnb. So we were blown away by the amount of money we were making from our Airbnbs. And then it came to a complete stop when people got the call to go back to work and to go back to school couldn't really take off like they they were during the during the pandemic. Uh, so I would be very cautious and careful. With that said, I think there's still opportunity to be in an area where maybe there aren't a lot of other short term rentals, um, or you know near a hospital or near a job center where people might just prefer an Airbnb than uh, you know than a hotel. Uh, but I would say it might be one of the riskier businesses right now, it still might make more money than a long-term rental. Uh, Long-term rentals are great and there's huge demand, but generally you can make more in a short-term rental. So you just have to compare. I kind of like the ease of the long-term rental because you don't have to worry about managing too much. You just manage the property manager. Now, definitely more passive. Anyway, thank you so much for all your questions. If you have more questions, you can send them over to hello at realwealth.com. Thank you so much for joining me here for the Ask Kathy Show. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Have a wonderful week. Bye-bye. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.